Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today is March 11, 2015, and my name is Brady Deaton of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics. Today I'll be speaking to Dr. Renee Van Acker about GMOs in agriculture. Dr. Renee Van Acker is Professor and Associate Dean of the Ontario Agriculture College at the University of Guelph. He's in the Department of Plant Agriculture. He's published over 100 peer-reviewed works. His research focuses on the coexistence of GM and non-GM crops, which makes him a perfect guest for today's discussion. Thanks for being here, Renee. Thank you very much for having me. The other day at an environmental symposium, I heard you answer a student's question, and the question was, if I walk in a grocery store, what products are GM products? Yeah, and that's a very good question. And the reason I think it's a good question is because uh, I think people are unsure as to what is GM or not GM uh, in terms of food. And I should say, when when I say GM, we're talking about genetically modified. Right, genetically modified organisms or genetically modified crops that are then used to, to make foods uh, or genetically modified crops that are ready to eat foods. And on that latter point, uh, the vast majority of GM is in field crops. So things like corn, soybeans, uh, in, in the case of Canada, canola, for example. Those would be the key GM crops. So sugar beet uh, would be another one. Very few of the items in our produce aisle would be GM. So uh, papaya, perhaps, uh, papaya source out of Hawaii would be GM. Um, perhaps uh, some squash, although not all. Uh, perhaps some sweet corn, although not all. Uh, and that would be about it. There is a, a, a pending deregulation of a GM apple, a non-browning apple, uh, which has been deregulated in the U.S., but not yet in Canada. So that may in, in the future appear on grocery store shelves, but not currently. So the items that would be derived from, from GM crops would be things like uh, margarine based on soybean or canola oil, for example, or processed foods that, that uh, contain uh, some element of corn. Those would all be uh, derived from ingredients from GM crops. And consumers sometimes are, are, are wondering about that. And, and, and I think they have a perception uh, driven, I, I suppose, by the media that that everything in the grocery store is GM. Uh, and that's not true. And an interesting point, uh, in fact, is that none of our cereals, uh, other than corn, if we consider that a cereal, uh, are GM. So wheat, barley, oats, uh, none of those are GM. Rice is not GM uh, yet. So I think that also sometimes surprises people. They think everything is, is G- just GM. Part of that confusion might also be that uh, people know that uh, varieties are bred to be uh, superior in some way, disease resistance, uh, better yield, etc. And bred varieties or cultivars are not GM per se. Uh, Genetic modification can be used as a tool in breeding, but it falls under breeding. It is not breeding. And so I think sometimes that confuses people too. Well, that's a good point. So there's genetic modification in some form has been going on for some time. What really distinguishes 
the way we talk about GMOs starting in the 1990s with, I guess, right. the first GMO product was the tomato. Right. Was it the tomatoes? Flavor saver tomato. Flavor saver tomato, which is didn't make it for. Didn't make it very far, for, no. For, but not because of the response to GMOs, right? More because it just wasn't. Uh, it, it just marketable. wasn't. Yeah, it just wasn't uh, as effective a product as, as they thought it would be. Um, but so then something happened in the 1990s that's, that was kind of different from the kind of changes in genes that have been going on in agriculture, I imagine, for some time. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, and I think that's, that's a very good point and, and fundamental to, uh, to why people are concerned about GM and, and or not. So we have been selecting for biotypes or selecting for cultivars uh, in agriculture for a long, long time. One might argue, you know, for 10,000 years uh, since we've been farming, uh, since the human race has been farming. But selecting uh, and traditional breeding uh, is different from GM or genetic engineering. And, and when we talk about GM colloquially, uh, genetic modification, uh, we are referring to genetic engineering. And, and genetic engineering, uh, we take to mean uh, recombinant DNA technology. And, and that is a very specific technology that was developed in the 70s uh, in, in the U.S., uh, University of California, San Francisco, in fact. And what it does is it'll, it's technology that allows for discrete pieces of DNA to be isolated from one organism and then moved into another. Uh, it allows us to move DNA, pieces of DNA, across species boundaries. With traditional breeding, uh, you don't have that ability. Um, one of the traditional definitions of a species is that you, you, uh, there's a sexual compatibility uh, amongst individuals in that species. And so you can uh, cross-pollinate, uh, to use a colloquial term. With genetic engineering, we're not bound by that. So we can take a, a piece of DNA from a soil bacteria, for example, and then transfer it into a plant or take a piece of DNA. You know, the, the classic... Proof of concept was in the uh, mid-80s where they transformed a tobacco plant with genes from a firefly uh, that allowed the tobacco plant to glow in the dark. It wasn't useful, but it was a very compelling demonstration of the power of that technology. And that's the key, is that it is a very powerful technology that allows us to move pretty much any piece of DNA from one species into another. Um, and so that, that opens up the possibilities uh, in a way that we could have never imagined before and it allows us to go way beyond traditional breeding. Um, plant breeders are excited by this because they are always looking for genetic variation to try to achieve certain ends, let's say disease resistance, for example. So if they can find genes in another organism beyond the species they're working with to help them to achieve that, they think that's great, and, and it can be great. People who worry, worry because we've never done this before. This may happen in very rare cases uh, in terms of, of this kind of broad uh, crossing over of DNA from one species to another. Maybe it, it could happen from soil bacteria, perhaps, into plants. Very rare. And so if we do this commonly, you know, people start to ask questions like, uh, well, what are the unintended effects? What are the things we don't understand about doing that? Um, and so there, you know, there's fear around that. Uh, to counter that, we, we have quite a bit of empirical evidence now that shows that there are no apparent unintended effects of, of doing that as we've been doing it. I think it's interesting 
to work through maybe for our listeners the first what is often referred to as the first wave right. of GM seeds or GM crops. Yeah. So would you mind doing that and then talking about yeah. that a little bit? Thanks. So and and that's a good point. I mean, uh, you know, GM technology also changed the business, the seed business because uh suddenly seed in industry or technology development industry uh, in agriculture became much more interested in plant breeding because of of this new possibility. They also became much more interested in it because uh, with GM technology came the possibility for absolutely identifying your product. Um, And uh, with uh, recombinant DNA technology, development in the 70s, by the late 70s, uh, there had already been a patent put onto a genetically modified uh, bacteria. And so the possibility was there for, for patenting uh, genetically modified organisms. And so the seed industry became interested in that. And that also drove uh, the first wave of traits, the nature of those traits, because the seed industry understood that the, the customers were farmers, and so the first uh, wave of traits were, were traits that would interest farmers. And so they were agronomic traits uh, that, that provided uh, operational benefits for, for farmers. And the two that are still essentially the predominant GM traits we have out there, almost the only GM traits we have out there would be uh, insect uh, resistance and herbicide tolerance. Uh, so the, the BT trait is an insect resistance trait, and then uh, the Roundup Ready trait is a herbicide tolerance trait. The, the glufosinate uh, resistance trait is also a herbicide tolerance trait. And those are the primary traits out there. So just to get back yeah. to your notion of what makes GMOs distinctly different from right. the, the crossbreeding techniques that used to go on, BT, as I understand it, is a bacterium. From Bacillus genus bacterium, and so they extract uh, the gene that then codes for a, what's called a cryoprotein uh, that uh, resides in the, in the gut of the insect and, uh, in short, kills insects of a, of a certain type, Lepidoptera. For example, the Roundup Ready trait was also derived from a bacteria, uh, soil bacteria, genes that conferred uh, resistance to glyphosate herbicide, common trade name Roundup. And so, you know, we were able to achieve those things, we, the Royal, we were able to achieve those things using genetic engineering techniques that they could not have done uh, in other ways. But the traits were relevant to the direct customer, which was the farmer. And there was a rapid adoption of those uh, products by the farmers because they, they did offer real operational benefits, um, Let's yeah. talk about that. So with this first wave, it's widely adopted in, in countries like uh, – with soybeans and corn, countries like the United Canada States. Canada and the U.S., Canada, yeah. Right. What do we know from 20 years or, or? – uh, I think this is the 20th season, yes. What do we know about the health and environmental consequences of this first wave of uh, genetically modified crops? Well, of course, these crops do undergo uh, scrutiny in a deregulation process by government regulators, both the U.S. and Canada. And so it's not like they're just released without any consideration whatsoever. So uh, regulators look at what uh, the possible environmental effects might be of a trait like uh, the Roundup Ready trait in soybean. Um, And their determination was that uh, there was relatively 
no environmental risk or no environmental risk uh, from these things being released. And that's likely true. Uh, you know, if you look at the trait, Roundup resistance, for example, how does that trait function uh, in individuals in the environment? And, and, and what one might have to look at is how, do those, how does that trait function in the environment in the absence of Roundup in that environment? So there'd be no selection for those individuals outside of the field uh, where Roundup is applied. Uh, and so those traits would essentially be neutral in wild-type populations or in the environment. And so they wouldn't necessarily pose any environmental risk. For the BT trait, that may not be true, you know, that because the BT trait does impact uh, insects who, that feed. There was some controversy around uh, um, what impact the BT trait was having on monarch uh, butterfly populations uh, in the U.S. and migrating populations of monarch butterfly because it's, it's a non-discriminating trait in terms of impacting insects. Having said that, uh, the the environmental assessment of the BT, BT trait was that uh, the impact would be low. And, and in fact, the scientific uh, literature shows that although there can be some impact, the impact would be very low. People do worry about other traits that may be coming into existence and whether those other traits may have real environmental impacts. In terms of human health, the same is true. Uh, these traits are put through feeding trials, for example. Uh, they are assessed in Canada by Health Canada, for example. And assessments are made as to whether there would be an impact on human health of consuming these. By and large, uh, uh, for uh, these traits um, don't impact the food products that they are part of at all. Uh, there's, there's no DNA remaining in the food products or the DNA is fully denatured in the food products that we derive, let's say margarine from soybean oil, for example, or from canola oil. So there's no remnant really of the, uh, of the modification uh, and so there's no impact on human health and there's no, there's no reason to think there would be. And there have, there have been a few studies, very few studies, looking at feeding uh, whole grains, so whole corn ground, uh, or whole soybean ground to rats to see if there's any effects. The studies, I would say, are, are at best non-conclusive, if, if we take them in, in a meta sense. There are not very many studies, but if we take those in a meta sense, it looks like there's really no impact of, of feeding things raw. And, and humans never eat these things raw like that anyways. Um, so I would, I would say the... Um, the current consensus out there is that there's there's no human health risk from GM crops as we currently have them. What's interesting is that this concern is still is grow in some ways has been from the very be- outset of the GM crops in the 1990s till today has persisted. And the concern that I'm saying is really on the consumer end of it. Um, despite perhaps the preponderance of scientific evidence with respect to the, and I know you were limiting your comments to right. really the first wave of what we've been able to observe. Right. And is part of that because you know, when they first, when the groups first provided these seeds, they targeted farmers. Farmers were re- readily adopted. But most people, the, the vast majority of people are consumers. Uh, and they didn't respond the same. 
And why? And why do you so? Why do you think that was? Yeah, it's 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 a very good point, and and you know it has caught companies like Monsanto, for example, off guard. Uh, Monsanto's customers are farmers, uh, so they they do not sell directly to the consumer. In fact, uh, in the U.S., uh, fewer than half of Americans even know who Monsanto is, which seems surprising to people like you and me. I know, but. Uh, it's because they are not a business-to-consumer company. They are a business-to-business company, the other business being farmers. So let's just back off. I hadn't yeah. thought about that, but since we have listeners who may not know who Monsanto is, who is Monsanto? Well, Monsanto is uh, is the world's largest seed company. But not fact. the only one, right? Not the only one. No, no. They, they were a pioneer in commercializing GM uh, seeds, GM technology and GM seeds. And so they... They have become the target, the poster company for uh, those who are anti-GM, anti-GM activists. And yet it, uh, it is not necessarily justified because they are certainly not the only seed company that's producing GM seeds. But they were the pioneer. They were the first. And, you know, they, Monsanto has a long tradition of being um, an avant-garde technology company. And they have a lot of pride in that. And so uh, sometimes they are viewed as aggr- as being aggressive in that regard, and uh, which just fans the flames, I guess, for activist groups. Um, the other thing that uh, has happened is that activist groups, I think, have recognized that um, that there is an, a lot of interest in uh, in the GM issue, and so one might argue that they have demonized, sometimes literally <laughs> demonized Monsanto. Uh, and, and created a target uh, for them to use to um, to compel uh, consumers, to compel people to pay attention to their activism or to pay attention to their organization that is active against GM. Um, but what is the evidence that's driving that? Uh, there's not there's not much. It's it's pretty thin. I, I would have to say, and yet they can still appeal to people because because it is such a novel technology um, because it's related to food and because it's somewhat esoteric the, the nature of the technology they, they can readily easily uh, um, cultivate fear amongst people because people don't understand the technology and so they, they, can, they can fear it right? they can fear what they don't understand so you, know, you can have a short equation esoteric, uh, relatively unknown technology that's being used on your food. That alone is a sufficient to cause concern amongst people who don't know anything about it. And in particular, the first wave isn't targeted to them, right? So Absolutely. here comes a new product. Right. It's got uh, a novel technology that's difficult for most people that aren't, for example, plant scientists to understand. And then when you pick it up, it's not clear to you exactly how it's delivering uh, product and so right. it seems like a, a recipe for um, a little bit of a problem from the start. In a sense, the design. Uh, Absolutely, and and you know, and and what is Monsanto to do? I mean, they it, you know they have a hard time presenting a value proposition to the consumer who can readily say, "Well, look, you know, the operational benefits you're providing the farmer are neither neither here nor there to me. I don't really care." I just don't want it, <laughs> and those, you know, and they can, you know, they, they have they have right to to that proposition. Just to review, so so that's the ultimate kind of demander on the other yes. hand. The, the, the producers that they were selling to readily adopted. What were some of the things that made that so attractive to farmers? 
Yeah, and and these are real things. Uh, you know, this isn't made up stuff. So um, we, in fact, did some work in Western Canada looking at farmers' uh, adoption of GM canola, Roundup Ready canola in particular. And so uh, Roundup Ready is is, is canola that is uh, um, genetically modified to be tolerant to glyphosate herbicide or trade name Roundup, Monsanto's trade name Roundup. And so you can uh, spray your canola with Roundup uh, herbicide and pretty much kill all the weeds. And, and Roundup is a very effective herbicide, extremely effective herbicide, uh, and relatively an environmentally benign herbicide as well compared to many other herbicides. So the, the value proposition for farmers was very easy for them to understand. They, understand, they understood Roundup, um, but they had never been able to use Roundup over top of a crop because Roundup kills most crops, pretty much all crops that, that we commonly grow. So to say to a farmer... You know Roundup. You know how effective a herbicide it is. It's super effective. We're going to modify your canola crop, and then you can spray Roundup on your canola crop and kill all the weeds. That's all you had to say to farmers. And they were like, what? (laughs) Okay, sign me up. Because, And not only that, but in canola in particular, somewhat in soybean, but less so in soybean, but in canola in particular, weed management was challenging for farmers. They were having to use typically a soil-applied herbicide and then one or two in-crop herbicides to gain, I would say, good, at best, good weed control in canola. And to turn that around and say, you know, you can do no soil-applied herbicide, one shot of Roundup, and you're done, completely changed everything for farmers. They, they, not only that, but, but canola was a crop they wanted to grow more of because it was lucrative for them. And so to make it a lot easier to do that really changed things for farmers. The last piece was that it also facilitated farmers growing canola in a, in a reduced tillage or a direct seeding manner because they no longer had to have the soil-applied herbicide. So taking that out of the equation made it much easier for them to grow canola with a direct seeding system, which is what they were all moving to anyway. So... You pull all those things together, and you have a very attractive value proposition for farmers. And it took them like five seconds to <laughs> compute that, re- that. The reduced tillage, just to just to back up for some right. of our listeners, is a potential environmental benefit that probably yes. didn't wasn't featured initially. Uh, initially, or no, wasn't even anticipated. No, but let's right. go over that. So we used to take a plow, we try to control weeds, we turn over all the soil. Walk me through then how that worked. Right, yeah, very typically exactly like that. I mean, when, when, you, uh, when you're growing an annual crop, uh, you come in in the spring and your, your, you know, your, your typical, your traditional weed control method would be some sort of tillage where you, you know, use a, a cultivator or a plow, this part of the world, a plow perhaps, or a disc or something, and you till that soil up uh, for a couple of reasons. One is to create a, a seed bed that, um, where you can get good seed soil contact. Uh, two would be to control the weeds that were coming up prior to seeding. So you want to have a clean seed bed, no weeds. With a direct seeding system or what some call a zero tillage system, you don't till prior to seeding. And you go in with a, with a modified seeder that allows you to, to create good soil seed contact through mechanical technology where you're not tilling all the soil. You're leaving that soil more or less undisturbed. What you then do is you you spray a herbicide to control all your weeds prior to seeding. In the case of canola prior to Roundup Ready technology, 
you were applying a soil-applied herbicide, which typically needed to be incorporated into the soil. So you had to use tillage not only to control the weeds prior to seeding, but to incorporate your herbicide. Even if you wanted to move to a a no-till system, if you had to incorporate that herbicide, you couldn't do it. And so to, to be able to eliminate that step opened up a new possibility for farmers growing canola. They were already doing that with their cereals, wheat in particular in Western Canada, Um, But now for them to be able to do it with canola in their rotation, it just completed their rotation for them. So now they could do their entire rotation in direct seeding or zero tillage. Now I think the statistics in Western Canada are that more than 80% of the acres are in uh, reduced or no-till direct seeding, uh, which is tremendous. And that that has been an unexpected benefit. You know, I, I wouldn't say that uh, Roundup Ready is responsible for zero tillage. That's not true. But Roundup Ready has facilitated a greater adoption of zero tillage, and it's facilitated having your whole rotation in zero tillage. Um, and, and the key benefit of zero tillage is uh, not only moisture conservation, but also building up soil organic matter. And so the first 100 years farming Western Canada, we burned up about 50% of the soil organic matter we are now rebuilding that soil organic matter, which is pretty astonishing, actually. Uh, so we are building, we are rebuilding soil in Western Canada. We're not losing soil, we're rebuilding soil, which is a tremendous accomplishment, has tremendous environmental benefits, and has tremendous uh, economic benefits in terms of, of the fact that the soil is your fundamental resource for agriculture. You know, that and light and rainfall, those are the three things you need. So, so... There are those benefits, and uh, Monsanto is now pretty quick to claim <laughs> those benefits as theirs. Right. Uh, you know, to some extent, they can do that. It certainly helped the situation. Yeah. Getting back to the controversies, uh, one of them, and I understand you um, were a bit involved in this, involved a farmer in Canada, and um, it gets back to this identification issue as well as property rights issues. Uh, right. But the basic story as I understand it is that he was cultivating uh, uh, GM seed and Monsanto took him to court and this was certainly not good press for um, For Monsanto Monsanto or for genetically modified crops in general. Can you just take us through the, you know, a brief version of that story and any thoughts you have on it? It's, it's an important, uh, it's an important story because uh, it highlights um, one of the key characteristics of the technology, which is what I said before, where the technology allows uh, seed technology companies or seed companies to absolutely identify uh, what they own. Um, because um, identification of of uh, um, a GM trait or the DNA that you moved into that crop, uh, you can prove that in a court of, of law. And so suddenly, uh, uh, companies had an ability to prove in a court of law whether somebody was in possession of their patented trait or not. Um, Monsanto, uh, and I think the the CEO of the company at the time, Shapiro, understood that very well and understood the power of that. And they changed the the business proposition uh, for seed at the time and introduced something called a technology use agreement. So now farmers not only purchase the seed and purchase the herbicide, but they had to also purchase a technology use agreement. They had to pay for it on a per acre basis. And in that use agreement, uh, they were allowed to 
purchase the seed. So they purchased the use agreement first. That allowed them to purchase the seed, and then they purchased the herbicide. But in that technology use agreement as well, they had to sign that they would not keep seed for reuse, that it would be uh, illegal for them to keep seed for reuse. And so this this changed things for farmers. Farmers uh, had a tradition, especially with publicly bred seeds, of buying the seeds and then saving you know, that seed, good seed from their crop for replanting next year, et cetera, et cetera. You couldn't do that when you were buying GM seeds because you were signing a contract that said it was illegal to do that. And if somebody else took that seed, you know, didn't sign a contract, but took that seed and then planted it, used it, they could be sued for possession of a patented entity and use and possession of a patented entity. That's what happened to Mr. Mr. Schmeiser in, in Saskatchewan. His case is, is complicated, uh, and, and I did testify in the original federal case in Saskatoon on behalf of Schmeiser's lawyer, not that I was a proponent of his or anything like that, but they brought a, a range of seed samples to our lab in Manitoba at the time, uh, and we tested all those seed samples to see to what extent they were Roundup Ready or not, what proportion. Very convoluted story on the part of Mr. Schmeiser in, in how he sourced his seed for his crops, and it was weird. But according to our testing, his story holds up. <laughs> as weird as it is. According to Monsanto's testing, it it doesn't. That may be neither here nor there. What's important is that uh, Monsanto was proving through a case like that that they could uphold the efficacy of their patent in a court of law and that farmers, whether they uh, directly purchased or not, if they were in possession of that patented entity, were liable for using it. That's a really important case. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Mr. Schmeiser lost, although he lost in a 5-4 split in the Supreme Court. Uh, Louise Arbour, who was on the Supreme Court at the time, wrote the dissension. And it's very interesting. And she highlights the challenges in patent law when it comes to entities that's, that can self-replicate, uh, self-disseminate, and persist in the, in the environment, living entities out in the environment. It's different than you know a, a, an inanimate widget of some sort, um, and so patent law is probably not sufficient currently to really deal with this. But nonetheless, you know the sign went out there that if you illegally use this patented seed, Monsanto will sue you and you'll lose. They've sued many many farmers in the U.S. Uh, and in Canada. Most of those cases are settled out of court. A few have gone to court. I don't think Monsanto's ever lost a case because they can't lose a case because they can absolutely prove ownership. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's changed the game for farmers in terms of, of how they view seed as an input. And, and it, has, it has significantly reduced uh, the extent to which farmers save their own seed. You know, in, it depends on the crop. This is more Western Canada. With corn, farmers haven't been saving seed for a long time. I mean, since we've been using hybrid corn uh, in the 40s, um, because if you save seed off hybrid corn, it segregates and you get a dog's breakfast. So farmers are used to buying corn seed every year. But with crops like even soybean, for example, you can save seed. Wheat, canola, oats, barley, you can save seed successfully. These are open-pollinated species. Um, so it changes the game for open-pollinated species uh, fundamentally. Interestingly, you know, now that we're in the 20th season 
of GM, the farmer community, I think, has a fundamentally different attitude towards that, by and large, than they did 20 years ago. And I think they're much more accepting of that value proposition where the seed company has a right to recoup their costs and profit uh, because they're providing a valuable product. Um, and I think farmers are more accepting now of that proposition than they were 20 years ago. And I think you'll just see that continue to, uh, that culture continue to evolve to the point where there will be very little seed saving anymore at, at some point. Yeah. I want to move the conversation on, and I'm particularly sensitive to something that I heard you say uh, when we were at the Environmental Symposium talking to students at the University of Guelph. Um, you might have said it to me, um, but it was it was you were concerned that this issue, as important as it is and as representative of it is to how we deal with new technologies and understand food, might be taking a lot of air out of the room with respect to other important issues that it's often brought up in the context of. So food security, for example, how do we feed 9 billion people in, not, in the not-too-distant future? You know, GM might have a role to play, it might not, but there's a lot of issues here. And I was wondering if you, if that, am I accurately getting your point? Yeah, and, no, no, uh, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. It is important. And, you know, in, in some ways, GM can be a distraction from things that are really important. It's interesting, you know, that we're sitting here uh, in 2015, which is the UN year of the soils. And, uh, and so soil is a really important uh, soil and soil conservation, uh, soil building. Uh, are really important issues, fundamental, critical, absolutely fundamentally important issues for life on the planet, human life on the planet. And so is the importance of of an issue like soil conservation being lost because uh, the media is all talking about GM foods, where there may or may not be actually anything to worry about currently. But we should be worrying about the fact that, you know, if we don't change our practices on the planet as as a whole... Uh, we will lose all of our soils in less than a century. That's really, really important because soil is not created in human time. It's created as a whole in geological time. And uh, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'm going to live through <laughs> geological time. <laughs> you know, none the human species won't live through geological time. And, um, and so, you know, whether we should be uh, discussing uh, the vagaries of meta-analysis on the human health impacts of GM, whether there's something there or not, or we should be really having a, a global convention on conservation of soils, I would vote for the global convention on the conservation of soils over that. Not that GM is not an important issue. Sure, it's important, and it, particularly as we go into the future, not least of which the fact that GM is that novel technology where you can, you know, almost any trait you can dream of, lest perhaps, you know, self-locomotion in crops or something weird like that, but almost anything you can dream of, you can do through genetic engineering. And so uh, for sure, for sure, there will be traits that we will want not released into the environment and not part of our food or feed stream. When when you think about genetic engineering and you think about the future, uh, do you orient yourself to genetic engineering as a broad concept, or are you look? I'm going to evaluate these trait by trait. Uh, yeah, I I, th- I think you know I think there should continue to be work done on 
the unintended impacts of transgenesis itself. So the the act of transforming plants. You know, one should scientists, uh, molecular biologists should continue to explore whether there could be any unintended effects. I think there's a lot more known now, for example, about epigenetics than there was 10 years ago. But epigenetics means epigenetics means not direct genetic effects okay, yeah. in in a nutshell. But yes, beyond that, for sure, it's trait by trait. Which, to be fair to our regulators, our government regulators, that's how they approach it. They approach it on a trait by trait basis, and so they they would say, you know, we are not anti GM, but we may be anti a particular anti GM trait because it really does have a, a an impact. But that doesn't mean we're not going to accept other GM traits. In fact, our our government and the U.S. government. Uh, does not discriminate on process. It says we will look at any trait and assess whether it has a potential environmental or human health risk, regardless of how that trait was put into that crop. I noticed that that if you go to Health Canada's website and you wanted to look at GMs or the the GMOs that were allowed in Canada, it's listed under novel foods. Is that yeah. part of uh, or novel? Novel, novel traits, novel it, traits. plants. I mean, and on the plant side, we, you know, we we uh, know the term PNT or plants with novel traits, which is a, a, a distinctly Canadian terminology. That's right. I mean, it's a novel trait, and so regulators are interested in those novel traits. A, a good example here uh, is uh, about a decade ago, there was an awful lot of interest in plant-made pharmaceuticals, using plants as factories for large molecule pharmaceuticals, using GM technology to transform the plants to be able to produce those. This has been done for a long time in, in what might be called white biotechnology, which is industrial biotechnology with you know using bacteria to produce pharmaceuticals in fully contained facilities. It's a whole other game when you, you know, transform a corn plant to produce a large molecule pharmaceutical and then grow it outside. And for sure, these traits can escape. They can move from corn plant to corn plant. And, uh, you know, there's some evidence in Mexico that they can move into wild-type teosinte, et cetera. That's one thing if you have the Roundup Ready trait moving, which is a pretty much a neutral trait in the environment. It's another thing if you have that trait, uh, if that trait is production of a large molecule pharmaceutical, moving into, you know, parts of the food stream or feed stream even that we don't want it to be part of that that's a whole other ball game and uh and and we have seen in canada for example uh, less so in the u.s although now more stringently regulators saying no we're not going to let you produce that large molecule pharmaceutical in canola because that's a bad idea because we know there can be some outcrossing and we can't afford for that trait to escape at all so uh, why don't you go and do that work in, you know, containment greenhouses in tobacco where it's never part of the food and feed stream? It's an interesting technology. It has value. Yes, we want you to do it. We just don't want you to do it as part of the food or feed stream at all. And and I think that makes sense, you know. Um, so that's, that's a consideration on a trade-by-trade basis, saying this trait is potentially dangerous. You know, and and so we got to do it a different way. Yeah, yeah. I want to kind of close and get your thoughts on how we engage this issue going forward. And we're talking here at the University of Guelph. You are involved in administration. You've been the chair of a department. 
we're engaging students, but we're also, by mere fact of doing this podcast, we're also we view our outreach as much broader, um, international. There's a range of issues. There's labeling issues. There's more, you know, moratoriums. There's risk communication. What what do you see as some of the outreach and education key issues moving forward with respect to GM? If you had thoughts that you would pass on to yeah. anybody listening to this podcast. Well, I mean, one would be, you know, how do we approach this as a university? And, and my answer to that would be, you know, uh, at, a, at a university, uh, the university doesn't hold an opinion on this because the university is, in fact, a collective of, of experts. And so uh, we default to expert opinion amongst our faculty, for example, and, and the faculty can comment on the basis of their expertise. So that's that's how the university a- approaches it. But in terms of of engagement, public engagement, uh, moving forward, certainly support of the regulatory system and uh, and support in evolution of the regulatory system is, is very important. Uh, we have to continue to have uh, very high-quality scrutiny on, on these things because I think we have to acknowledge the novelty of the technology. I'm always upset when um, proponents you know, for whatever reason, equate GE with plant breeding and say, oh, we've been doing genetic modification for 10,000 years. That is not true at all. We need to be very clear that this is, in fact, a very novel technology that we've only recently been using. And and it provides possibilities that are way beyond the realm of traditional plant breeding. And so it can, in fact, provide risks that are way beyond the realm of traditional plant breeding. And, and that has to be acknowledged Having said that, um, we do have a regulatory system that I think is efficacious in uh, ensuring that we aren't releasing things that are uh, harmful to the environment or harmful to human health. Beyond that, one might consider the issue of seed ownership. And this has also been a controversial issue for many people. And it's something to consider. And I I think farm organizations uh, need to consider it. but I, I don't think there, there's, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any value in just sticking your head in the sand and denying that the seed industry has changed from a, a commercial business perspective with this technology and the possibilities this technology brings in terms of identifying property. Uh, and so if farm organizations or activist farm organizations want to proceed in this regard, they have to proceed in the context of this technology existing and the business uh, models that exist with this technology you know maybe they need to form ownership cooperatives or you know they might have to approach it in a slightly different way but they can approach it from the perspective of uh, we want to eliminate this technology i just think there's no traction there we will progress with gm in the future there's way too much potential in the technology who knows what we might need it for? Who knows what it might do for us? But the last thing I will say is um, we also need to be clear that we don't put the cart before the horse. Agriculture is not about GM technology. Agriculture is about the things that are uh, really important in terms of providing food and sustenance for the planet and care for the environment. GM is a technology in that context that's all it is, and, and we need to make sure we, 
we have a proportionalized view of that technology. And that goes to, you know, my concerns about not worrying about soils and worrying about GM when really proportionally we should be worrying more about soils than we worry about GM. So that, maybe I'll leave it at that. Renee Van Acker, thank you so much for being on Fair Talk today. Thank you, Brady. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.